This is an ABC podcast. In a widely welcomed move, Centrelink will take into account evidence of domestic violence when assessing eligibility for payments. A woman's violent and controlling partner went to all of her Centrelink appointments with her. He controlled her bank accounts and used her credit card without her permission. And when Centrelink looked at the criteria, they actually used all of those behaviours as evidence that she was in a relationship with this violent partner. Advocates say this reform will save lives. Hi, Damien Carrick here. That's coming up shortly on The Law Report. First, when you participate in a sporting competition and you sustain an injury, can you seek compensation from the organisers? Well, the Queensland Supreme Court has upheld a million-dollar damages award for an accident that took place at a triathlon. Mooloolaba-based lawyer Gemma Barnard acted for the plaintiff. Gemma Barnard, tell me about your client, Sally James. Prior to the accident, Dr James was a clinical psychologist and she specialised in autism spectrum disorders in children. She had two young boys and she was incredibly fit, someone who thoroughly enjoyed participating in various sporting activities, particularly triathlons. And so she was someone who was fairly active in uh, in her life and someone who certainly wasn't slowing down anytime soon, um, particularly before this uh, triathlon occurred. And this was a triathlon which occurred in February 2018. I think she was 51 years old mm. at the time. What happened at this event? Sure. So the event which is central to Dr James' case was the Luke Harrop Memorial Gold Coast Triathlon, which is held in Southport in Queensland in about February each year. And Dr James was involved in the triathlon in 2018. So... In the days leading into the event, southeast Queensland had been battered by storms and heavy rain, which had impacted upon the bacteria levels in the watercourse where the swim leg of the triathlon was to take place. And so the day before the event, against the background of those poor water and weather conditions, the decision was made to eliminate the swim leg altogether and replace it with a second run leg, which did necessitate some changes to the triathlon, the course layout, and in fact the event was changed completely to a duathlon. So the extra run leg meant that the method for releasing the various classes of athletes and para-athletes in racing wheelchairs onto the course was altered, which meant that there was a length of time where both athletes on foot and para-athletes in racing wheelchairs were sharing the course. And as I understand it, there are about 1,400 athletes, uh, most of them, the great majority, able-bodied, and about eight para-athletes, athletes in wheelchairs, uh, who were also uh, in this competition. Tell me about the injury, tell me about the accident which your client sustained. So at trial, Dr James' evidence was that she was not a particularly fast runner at all. In fact, she'd been quite disappointed that the swim leg was cancelled because she was a much stronger swimmer. And as she was racing that day, she'd been quite cautious to keep to the left of the race line as she knew that other competitors were likely to overtake her on the, on the right. 
And so during the race and as she was completing the very first run leg and she was running towards a transition area where she would finish that run leg and commence the, the cycling leg, she was negotiating her way around an S-bend in the course when she heard a, a loud and rather aggressive voice yelling out words to the effect of, get out of the way, get out of the way. And moments later, a para-athlete in a racing wheelchair collided at some quite considerable speed with Dr James, clipping her on the right ankle and knocking her backwards where she hit her head on, on the ground. Uh, and in that collision, the para-athlete himself was thrown quite dramatically from his wheelchair and, uh, and into the barriers on the very far right of the course. So as a result of hitting her head, she actually sustained brain damage, I understand. That's right, yes. Yeah. So in the, in the accident itself... Dr. James sustained quite significant injuries, including a, a traumatic brain injury and, uh, of course, a, a psychological um, sequelae. Mm. Okay. And, and these injuries, uh, in fact, forced her to, to close her psychology practice, forced her to declare bankruptcy. And um, that's why the court has awarded her, and it's been upheld by the Court of Appeal, a million dollars in damages. Yes, that's right. So after the accident and, and due to the nature of her ongoing symptomology, tragically, Dr. James, she struggled to remain uh, practising as a clinical psychologist and unfortunately uh, was required to completely close her practice and, and correct the, the judgment that the trial judge awarded um, was in excess of $1 million. Okay, so Sally James took successful action against the organisers of the event, not against the, the para-athlete who hit her from behind, who, who called out, get out of the way, get out of the way. Why did the court find that the organisers of the event, I think they're called USM event organisers, why mm. were they liable for this terrible accident? So Dr. James's case was that the organisers of the event, USM events, were aware or ought to have been aware of the risk of harm to athletes by conducting the races for both athletes on foot and para-athletes in wheelchairs on the same course at the same time. And she argued that USM had breached their duty of care by failing to take reasonable precautions to guard against that foreseeable risk of harm. And look, in terms of the reasonable precautions that Dr James argued ought to have been taken, she contended that, in fact, when the course was altered to the extent that the para-athletes in wheelchairs and the athletes on foot would be sharing the course, the exercise of reasonable care required USM to have in place a barrier to support the two groups. And that barrier should have been in place particularly at the pinch points or perhaps the more narrower areas of the course where there was likely to be some congestion or perhaps an accumulation of competitors. What's the take-home message from this decision in terms of what we know about liability and where it should fall? Realistically, in these types of cases involving sporting events or, or recreational activities, there are likely to be inescapable risks involved in the, the specific activity itself. But voluntary participation in a sporting activity does not imply an assumption of any risk which might be associated with that activity. So, of course, it, it depends on, in fact, what the person participating in the activity knew at the time and, in fact, that will determine whether or not the, the risk of harm that materialised was indeed obvious. What does this tell us about whether para-athletes and able-bodied athletes should compete in the same, on the same course, in the same mm. event? 
the the trial judge did examine the the conflict in in these types of cases particularly where event organizers want to ensure that they are providing a, an inclusive event which is critically important but that doesn't obviate the the need for an examination in terms of the the relevant risks um, if in fact para athletes competing in you know wheelchairs that are metallic they're heavy and can travel at considerable speeds um, so against the background of, of wanting to make sure that events are inclusive and are um, welcoming of course to to the community the, the disability community doesn't uh, obviate an organizer from examining in fact the risks to all competitors so, so it's not an either or, it's about how to do this well. We want everybody to participate in the same sorts of events and just be, be mindful of the risks and take reasonable mm, steps. Absolutely. There's been another very interesting case looking at similar sorts of issues. It was a High Court decision from last year called TAP and the Australian Bushmen's Camp Draft and Rodeo Association. Now, this involved uh, camp drafting, which is a unique Australian sport involving a horse and a rider uh, working cattle to kind of isolate it from a group of cattle and then um, t take it from one part of the yard to the other to, to show control, to demonstrate control over the animal. Now, there was a very experienced and able horse rider who had a terrible accident in the course of one of these events. What happened to her and why was the association found liable for her terrible injuries? So in the case of TAP, the appellant was just shy of 20 years old and she fell from her horse while she was competing in this camp draft event and she suffered significant spinal injuries um, in the form of a, of a incomplete T11 quadriplegia, I believe. And her case was that her fall from her horse was caused by the negligence of the defendant, the Australian Bushmen's Camp Draft Association. She alleged that, in fact, the surface of the arena uh, had deteriorated to the point where it was slippy. And so, in fact, the, the organiser of the event had failed to maintain it in a way that it was safe uh, for her to compete. And I think, you know, over the course of the, the day in the lead up to her uh, terrible accident was um, there'd been, I think, three or four times where where um, people had um, that, that had to kind of stop proceedings um, for safety reasons. Yes, that's right. And so the, the allegation was, in fact, that the organisers were on notice of the deterioration uh, in the, the surface of the arena prior to the appellant's injury. I think there were four falls, in fact. They, were, they weren't just kind of um, concerns. They were actually people falling off horses mm. during the day. So um, she was able to successfully argue, and this was upheld by the High Court of Australia, that, that in fact um, she didn't sustain an injury as a result of an inherent risk of the sport she was engaged in, but rather a failure by the organisers mm. to make sure that there was a, a safe place in which to carry out the sport. That's right. So the High Court held that the risk of injury by falling from a horse that had slipped due to the deterioration in the surface of the arena was just not a risk that was obvious to a person that was in the position of the plaintiff. As 
amongst other things, she just didn't have the opportunity to examine the quality of the ground. And it was considered reasonable that a person in her position just would have relied upon the event organisers to make appropriate decisions about the ground and consistently with the rules um, in these particular events. You're listening to The Law Report on Radio National and today my guest is uh, Gemma Barnard who's a, a personal injury lawyer based in Mooloolaba, uh, Queensland. Gemma, we've been talking about uh, you know your, your client who, who was a participant in a triathlon. We've been talking about equestrian personal injury cases involving equestrian events. Look, a, a sport which perhaps along with equestrian events um, does have certain inherent risks uh, are riding quad bikes. Can you tell me about a recent case mm. involving that sport? In Alamedine and Glenworth Valley horse riding, we saw the New South Wales Court of Appeal examine a case involving an 11-year-old plaintiff who had suffered some injuries after falling from a quad bike that she was operating at, at considerable speed. And in that case, whilst the court accepted that injury may be suffered if a person was unable to properly control their quad bike, which would be an obvious risk, the risk of injury resulting from an instructor riding faster than what was safe, giving the plaintiff in this case no real choice but to speed up in order to keep up with him, the court considered that risk just wasn't a risk inherent or incidental to the, the quad biking activity. And so against that background, um, the court found that in fact the, the risk of injury to the plaintiff in that case just wasn't an obvious risk. And especially we're talking about an 11-year-old as well, who's kind of a sort of a very vulnerable um, person. Gemma Barnard, uh, look, I want to change track a little. Your firm, um, Travis Schultz and Partners, was involved in a really interesting case that we covered on the Law Report last year, and it's just finalised also uh, in the last few days. It involved a bloke called Trent Anthony Ford, and and he was an Australia Post delivery person. He was riding a motorbike, and he sustained, uh, he, he had an accident on, on, on mm. or sustained an injury rather, on a Brisbane road. Can you remind me what that, what that injury was and what the issue was at the heart of this very, very unusual case? Yes, absolutely. So Mr Ford, as you say, he, he was a postie for Australia Post and he suffered quite serious spinal injuries back in, in early 2019. And at the time of the accident, he was on the road and undertaking deliveries as a, as a postie and he was travelling behind a, a concreting truck. And as he's going down the road, he notices a lump of timber slide off of the tray of the truck travelling in front of him and into his uh, his path of travel. And in an attempt to avoid the, the timber, Mr Ford starts to, to swerve around, but unfortunately his rear wheel ran straight over the, the block of timber. And even though he was able to keep his bike upright, his body was significantly jarred. And in the days after the event, he experienced the onset of symptoms um, in his spine, which soon to soon became uh, aware of the fact that he'd sustained quite significant spinal injuries. And so, indeed, indeed, he could no longer ride a motorbike, for instance, um, that's or, right. or, or work so, as opposed to... That's right. So his spinal injuries had devastating consequences for him, which ultimately led to, to him resigning from his role with Australia Post. But mm. he, when he sought compensation from the sort of road traffic authority or its equivalent in Queensland, that was denied. And why was that denied? 
Mm. So as Mr Ford, he couldn't identify the truck from which the timber had fallen from. He served his claim on the nominal defendant. So the nominal defendant in Queensland is a statutory body established for the purposes of compensating people who are injured in traffic accidents as a result of negligent driving or um, the unidentified uninsured vehicles. Presumably, he, he goes over this lump and he's so busy concentrating on keeping upright, he isn't kind of, you know, jotting down the, the rego or, or kind Spot of on. committing that to memory. So he can't, when he realises that he's he's injured, which is a few days later, and indeed I think he doesn't even actually put in the paperwork until a considerable amount of time after that, but mm. but but he can't provide a rego and the, the authorities say, well, I'm sorry, you haven't really done everything you should have, which is to provide us... With with a registration number of the car that was involved in the accident with you. That's right. So under the Motor Accident Insurance Act in Queensland, the nominal defendant can only be found liable if the injured person has undertaken reasonable steps to try and identify the vehicle involved. So the critical issue for determination by the trial judge at first instance was whether Mr Ford had in fact undertaken proper search and inquiry. Um, And so... At trial, his evidence was that he had immediately reported the accident to his employer, who undertook their own investigations. He went around some nearby businesses to see if they had any CCTV footage of the particular truck or of the the timber coming away from the truck. He drove by nearby streets, trying to keep an eye out for the truck, but all of that was unsuccessful. And as such, when the trial judge came to, to consider the matter before him, he dismissed Mr Ford's claim on the basis that he just wasn't satisfied that Mr Ford had undertaken proper search and inquiry. The judge considered that Mr Ford failed to pursue the truck immediately after the accident and attempt to record its registration details in some way and against that background had indeed failed to, to undertake those uh, required searches. So that's the Supreme Court has just overturned that that decision. In a nutshell, briefly, what did the Supreme Court find? The Court of Appeal allowed the appeal on the basis that proper search and inquiry just didn't require Mr Ford to pursue the truck in the hope of observing and and somehow memorising its registration number. The ultimate um, contention from the nominal defendant was that Mr Ford should have searched the surrounding road network in the days after the accident in, in some attempt to locate the truck. But From a practical perspective, the appeal decision reinforces that, in fact, proper search and inquiry does not require an injured person to undertake illogical steps or steps that only have a faint possibility of being productive when they they do commence those searches in an attempt to try and identify the vehicle at fault. Lawyer Gemma Barnard uh, with uh, Travis Schultz and Partners, who's based in Mooloolabar, Queensland. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's almost 40 years since the historic High Court decision that saved Tasmania's Franklin River. The ABC's Joe Lauder has a great podcast series to mark the anniversary. Here's a quick taste. It's a lot of anticipation right now. Baby's first trip to the Franklin. (laughs) Australia's biggest ever environmental battle was over this remote stretch of river in Tasmania. People flew in from all over Australia simply to be arrested. If that dam is built, all this this forest here would be lost forever. Should the Franklin River be dammed or not? The Franklin River is nothing but a brown, 
weight-ridden ditch. My job is now on the line and my husband's is on the line. This fight captured and divided the whole country. He escalated and it split families. The Hydroelectric Commission's headquarters has now been firebombed. There's been a threat that you'll be assassinated. 40 years on, I decided it's time to revisit Australia's biggest ever environmental campaign. If enough people care, we can win. I want to know, in a fight for the environment, what does it take to win? Like all mythology, it depends on who's telling the story. This is Saving the Franklin. Find it on the ABC Listen app. And now to our next conversation here on The Law Report. The federal government is expanding access to the single parenting payment until the youngest child turns 14. Currently the cut-off age is eight. Leanne Ho, Chief Executive Officer of Economic Justice Australia, has welcomed this move, saying it will help prevent victims of family violence falling into poverty. Also to be celebrated is a change to the policy on how Centrelink decides someone is part of a couple under social security law. Leanne Ho, what has been the issue with the way Centrelink decides if someone experiencing domestic violence is or isn't a member of a couple? It's really been up to an individual decision maker at Centrelink whether or not a domestic violence circumstance is seen as evidence that someone is a member of a couple or is not a member of a couple. And we've seen cases where what we understand now to be indications of financial abuse are actually used by Centrelink to decide that someone is a member of a couple. To give you an example, we had a case where a woman's violent and controlling partner went to all of her Centrelink appointments with her He controlled her bank accounts and used her credit card without her permission. He went to all of her doctor's appointments with her. And when Centrelink looked at the criteria um, for deciding whether or not she was a member of a couple, they actually used all of those behaviours as evidence that she was in a relationship with this violent partner. So the kinds of scenarios you're talking about, the relationship is a controlling one and an abusive one, and nevertheless, a Centrelink officer will decide that they are in a kind of a functioning couple, and for that reason, uh, you look at both incomes when determining if somebody should be eligible for, for Centrelink. Correct. And that hasn't really taken into account the reality of the dynamics in these relationships where abuse is present. The idea of assessing a member of a couple's income with their partner's income is that this assumption that the relationship resources will be pooled and shared equally. And where that's not happening, where abuse and especially financial abuse is present, the social security system should recognise that. But in this situation with the member of a couple assessment, it's really important to understand that once your partner, even if they're violent and controlling, once they earn over just over $1,000 a week, that's enough to knock out your entitlement to a Centrelink payment. So what are the changes that the government has just announced, which you say are are crucial for addressing this issue? The change is going to clarify 
that domestic violence is a consideration that Centrelink officers should take into account when they're deciding that someone is a member of a couple. And this will enable them to then treat the person as being single for the purposes of giving them a social security payment. So changing the guidelines for uh, social security eligibility is very important, but you will need to monitor you will need to monitor how that is implemented by Centrelink officers on the ground. Have there been experiences in other countries where this kind of change has been brought in, but maybe you haven't seen the on-the-ground movement that you wanted to see? Yes, and I'd like to clarify that this change is to the policy and not to the law in Australia. In New Zealand... Back in 1996, there was a leading court of appeal case on this issue where a single mum in Auckland was convicted of ripping off the sole parent benefit there for allegedly being in a relationship with a man who was abusive. And so they established in that case in New Zealand that the most important thing is the assumption of financial responsibility and that two people have to be willing to step up and support each other for the social security system to get involved in deciding whether being a member of a couple should apply in those cases. Um, But what's happened in New Zealand, what we've heard from New Zealand, is that without decision makers within their equivalent of Centrelink being fully trained to apply that law, these kinds of injustices still continue. So what needs to happen on the ground to make sure that the, the changes to the guide are actually implemented by the people behind the glass at the Centrelink offices? It's really important that there's training in place to make sure that decision makers know how to apply this new guidance clarifying how the law should be applied. And we're involved in workshops um, with the uh, current members of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal who will be applying these uh, changes too to ensure that they understand the dynamics of family and domestic violence and what these clarifications will mean for the application of law in these cases. You're talking there about uh, the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, who kind of hear appeals from um, decisions made by the department. But in the past, have they been alive to these considerations? Through the experience of our community legal centres, we've seen both positive and negative decisions made in these circumstances, which is why having this clarification in the guidance is is so important. Um, We did have a case going back to the report that we did in 2018 where a tribunal member actually decided that domestic violence wasn't a special circumstance that would justify waiving a Centrelink debt. Um, saying that domestic violence is so commonplace in the community that it's actually not special. And we want this kind of reform to the policy and legislation to make it clear that domestic violence has these impacts on people who need income support. And the explicit change to the guide, which has been announced by the government, goes a long way to help people 
you know, sitting in Centrelink offices and also decision makers who are hearing appeals from the decisions of these people recognise domestic violence when working out a person's eligibility for, for social security. That's a take-home message here. Absolutely, Damien. It gives some guidance on how to um, consider these issues, but it also signals just a more sophisticated understanding across the community about what domestic violence looks like and what um, people experiencing domestic violence need in order to be able to leave and re-establish their life in safety without leaving to go into poverty. Leanne Ho, Chief Executive Officer of Economic Justice Australia, the peak body for community legal services that provide help with the Centrelink problems. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. That's all we have time for today. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.